Well, <clears throat> excuse me, it's good to see folks this Lord's Day morning. If you can, sorry about the the, the voice, I've been kind of fighting a sore throat here. So we'll, we'll see how this goes. Could be, uh, well, it's going to be kind of a short lesson, I think, anyway. So <clears throat> let me um, encourage you uh, to turn to Jeremiah 9. Jeremiah 9. Chapter 9, then verses 23 and 24. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. <laughs> thus says the <clears throat> excuse me, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. And let us pray, shall we? Father, we, we thank you this morning that we can come before a God that is glorious and a God that is holy and, and interact with um, your pure and precious and, and holy word. We, we thank you for the the preciousness of the, the fellowship we have together in Christ. I, I think for each one that is here, I, I pray that our time would be profitable and good for our souls and helpful to our thinking process about your character and your nature and your being. So I just uh, commit our time to the thank you for your many kindnesses to us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning is really, it's kind of an introduction to chapter 2 of London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is of God and the Holy Trinity. And uh, next time uh, that we meet, when I will be teaching, is February the 11th, uh, the next two Lord's Days. Um, Brother Scott Bills is going to be teaching in Sunday school, and then the first Sunday of the month we'll have prayer, the, the second Sunday uh, we'll, I'll be back, and then we'll, we'll, we'll dig more deeply into the second chapter of the confession, uh, which is of God and the Holy Trinity. And, and the notes that you have are just copies of a couple things I was going to read in your hearing this morning. That's why there's some squiggles on there, so they're, they're not really the kind of notes that I, I normally have. Um, so this morning, I, I, I want to focus on the importance of, of knowing God, which I thought was kind of a helpful introduction to uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. But also, I, I just received material from Brian Tate, and that's why these notes are so thick. So if you turn to about the third page in, this is just simply a copy of the latest information that I received from him. And so if you, if you turn the page, there's a the picture of um, the, the brethren that he has, and then he has... Um, I'll just read part of this. He says, Dear Brethren, um, we're pleased to send this report to our sister churches and friends who pray for us and, and the labors um, extended in the country of Zimbabwe. <clears throat> we give thanks to our Lord for his hand um, of guidance and provision. During the summer months, uh, through divine providence, we were brought into contact with a brother who has, was completing his internship at Bethany Baptist Church in uh, South Africa. And um, he talks about, we had conversations by telephone, finally came face-to-face -face when arriving, arriving in Zimbabwe. And uh, so they're helping with the new church plant in Zimbabwe, and they'll be overseeing uh, that particular ministry. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to let you read the rest of that at your, at your leisure. But if you, if you turn the page, I just thought this was kind of helpful. It's, it 
put some faces to the names and the places that we pray about. So it's just, here's a picture of the church at worship there. Then the next page is the brother we, we prayed for recently uh, and, and his wife. Uh, the SIS there stands for Sister, Sister Shamiso. And uh, then if you turn the page again, there's a, a picture of the brother that uh, we, we prayed for recently as well and his wife. And then the next page is uh, Brian Tate um, baptizing and um, a picture of the other folks after worship service. And then the last page, the church at Harare, and then just some pictures of some brothers and sisters in Christ. So anyway, I thought that would be helpful. Just we, we pray for these folks regularly. You can take that and, and look a bit more at it at your leisure. Um, okay. <clears throat> in, in the confession, in moving from chapter 1 to chapter 2, um, and chapter 2 is of the Holy Trinity, um, there's a, there's a shift from an emphasis on the Holy Scriptures um, to an emphasis on the being and the character of God, which is wrapped up in the doctrine of the Trinity. And, and you can readily see the wisdom, I think, of the confession, because first there has to be a deep persuasion of the authority and inerrancy of Holy Scripture. Um, and, and then you come to um, truth about God, truth about the, the character of God that is edifying to the soul. And this kind of fits in with the, the flow of thought in the Catechism, because question uh, two, uh, question two, three, and four all deal with uh, the scriptures. Uh, what rule has God given to direct us so we may glorify and enjoy him? Uh, the word of God, namely the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us so we may glorify and enjoy him. Are the scriptures trustworthy in all that they affirm? The scriptures of both the Old and New Testaments, being God-breathed, are infallible and inerrant in all their parts and are therefore trustworthy in all they affirm concerning history, science, doctrine, ethics, religious practice, or any other topic. Question four, what do the scriptures principally teach? Then, <clears throat> after there's the, these questions on the authority, the errancy of, inerrancy of scripture, then question five, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, eternal and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Then are there more gods than one? There is but one, only the living, true God. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Trinity. These three are one, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. So you see the logic here, I think, both in the Confession as well as the Catechism. First, there's a persuasion of the inerrancy and the authority of Scripture. Then, what does that Scripture say about the character of God and the being of God? <clears throat> but we see, <clears throat> excuse me, but we see not only progress in the catechism from the trustworthiness of scriptures and teaching of, about God himself, but I, I think the knowledge of God is one of those themes that when you consider it, consider it, it makes you feel that um, when a person is truly converted, this is the great need of the soul. The great need of the soul is to be increasing in the knowledge of God. And I have a quote here. Um, it's, it's kind of a long quote from Spurgeon. <clears throat> Excuse me, if it sounds familiar, it's because at the, it's at the beginning of Jack Packer's book, Knowing God, but it's a little bit different. And this is a Spurgeon, <clears throat> a sermon on Malachi 3.6. And he says it has been said by some that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God, and the proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. 
uh, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, nature, the person, the work, the doings, the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There's something exceedingly improving to the mind in contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are, are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Uh, other subjects we can compass and grapple with, and then we feel a kind of self-content and go our own way with the thought, behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our, excuse me, our plumb line cannot sound its depth, and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise. He is like a wild ass's colt with a solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. We shall be obliged to feel, great God, how infinite art thou, what worthless worms we are. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around the narrow globe. He may be a naturalist boasting of his ability to dissect a beetle, um, anatomize a fly, or arrange insects and animals in classes with well-nigh unutterable names. He may be a geologist able to discourse of the, well, let's go with uh, Megatherium and the Plesior, Plesiosaurus, how about that? In all kinds of extinct animals, he may imagine that his science, whatever it is, ennobles and enlarges his mind. I dare say it does. <clears throat> but after all, the most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified in the knowledge of God, of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so <clears throat> magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And whilst humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound, a musing on the Father, a quietus for every grief, and the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrows? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself into the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of grief and sorrow, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout music upon the subject of the Godhead. It is to that subject that I invite you this morning. We'll end our reading right there. Uh, it's hard to imagine Spurgeon when he was 20 years old when he said that. That's where his head was at when he was 20, 20 years old. But anyway, it, it moves your, your soul into the, the priority and the importance of, of knowing God. So what I, what I want to do here is just draw your attention to um, some texts of Scripture in the Bible that speak of the priority of knowing God. And again, this is just simply kind of an introduction to the second chapter of the Confession that focuses on the Trinity. So we'll turn to um, Daniel chapter 11 and verse 32. Daniel chapter 11 and then verse 32. Daniel eleven thirty two, and uh, Jeff Spiro, you want to read that verse for us? Yeah. All right. <clears throat> By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. 
that the people who know their God will display strength and take action. That's the key. That's the key phrase. The people who know their God will display strength and take action. And you're probably aware. I think the the wisdom of finding that here is you have Daniel, who um, rather than stop praying, would be thrown into a lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, rather than fall down and worship a false image, would be thrown into a flame of fire. The point being, the people who know their God will display strength and take action. The knowledge of the character of, of God. And then, you know, if you just turn a couple of pages, this Hosea, Hosea, um, the, the point, <clears throat> excuse me, is really pressed in this book. Notice chapter 4, Hosea in verse 1, Hosea 4, 1. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. And this is it. Because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. Part of his case against the people is there's no knowledge of God. Verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Chapter 5 and verse 4, their deeds will not allow them to return to their God. <clears throat> Spirit of harlotry is within them. They do not know the Lord. In chapter 6 and verse 6, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And the, the next text, I read at the beginning, and it's at the top of your notes, and I'm just going to uh, ask Brother Max if you'll just reread uh, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, brother. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Thank you. That's probably one of the best verses in all the, uh, the Bible about the priority of, of knowing God. And, and the motivation, I think, is obvious. Um, God delights in the one who knows him and who is increasing in the knowledge of him. <clears throat> J.A. Thompson, a commentator, wrote both Hosea and Jeremiah, believe strongly that true religion consists in a personal and existential knowledge of God. And in your notes here, this is a, a quote from John Newton, Letters to a Nobleman. And he writes here, I have seen of late something of the weight and importance of this admonition, Jeremiah 9 a passage which, though addressed to the wise, the mighty, and rich, is of universal application for self, unless corrected and mortified by grace, will find something whereof to glory in the meanest characters and lowest situations. And indeed, when things come to be weighed in the balance of the sanctuary, he says the lunatics in Bedlam. Bedlam was a royal hospital in London during his time. It was for the mentally ill and was kind of a place of chaos and confusion. But the lunatics in Bedlam, some of them glory in their straw or their chains as marks of splendor or ensigns of royalty, have as much reason on their side as any persons upon the earth who glory in themselves. This alone is the proper ground of glory and joy. If we know the Lord, then all is safe at present, and all will be happy forever. And whatever changes may affect our temporal concernments, our best interests and hopes are secured beyond the reach of change. And whatever we may lose or suffer during this little span of time will be abundantly compensated in the glorious state of eternity, which is just at hand.
Okay, then another text would be Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10. And the context here makes this uh, especially powerful, I think. Colossians 1, <clears throat> 10, and um, let's see. Um, I'm going to pick on you again, Max, if you would read Colossians 1, 9 and 10. 9 and 10. This cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. All right. And thank you, brother. And what, sta excuse me, what stands out here is um, it's, it's an, a specific inscripturated petition, increasing in the knowledge of God. So that we know it's right to pray this for ourselves. It's right to pray for other people. It's right to pray for one another that we would all be increasing in the experiential knowledge of God. And this is this is crucial. It is necessary. And I, and here we notice that it's a it's linked with things like walking in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, pleasing Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. This is this is what God what God has joined together. So there's a close relation. It suggests that 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 walking with the Lord, pleasing the Lord, and and bearing fruit can't be separated from an increasing knowledge of the character and the being of God. And again, it shows how practical the knowledge of God really is. <clears throat> the term translated increase means to grow. Uh, in Matthew 6, 28, it's, considered, it's translated, consider, it, it occurs, consider the lilies of the, the field, how they grow. Um, Jesus, it's used of Jesus as a child, and the child continued to grow. So it, checks, it, it suggests fruitfulness and progress, like Proverbs 1, 3, the person who meditates on the, on the word yields fruit in its season. John Eady wrote this knowledge of God as the purest and loftiest of human acquisitions. It's the, he calls it the pablum. That would be the, the food of spiritual growth. And then uh, another text, if you back up, John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is in the context of uh, our Lord's high priestly prayer. John chapter 17, and then verse 3. John 17, 3. Um, this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent so eternal life here is not expressed so much in duration as we would might think but it's it's the experiential communion with God that's how eternal life is presented here and Leon Morris <clears throat> says here we have something of a definition of eternal life Really, to know God means more than knowing the way to life. It is life. And he uses the comparison that it's a blessing and a, an inspiration to, to know certain people. Uh, there are certain people that when you're around them, you, you feel enriched and inspired and encouraged. Kind of the opposite of evil company corrupts good morals. And, um, and it's the idea that the more that we know God, the, more, the better it is for our soul, the more conformed we would be to the image of Christ. He says much more... Um, it is the case when we know God. To know him transforms a man, <coughs> introduces him to a, a different quality of living. Eternal life is simply the knowledge of God. And then turn, if you would, one last text here this morning. 
<coughs> excuse me, Acts 17. Acts chapter 17. And verse 22 to 31. Acts 17, 22 to 31. Brother Mark is going to read that for us. So Paul stood in the midst of the Aragopo. How do you say that? And said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold, or silver, or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Thank you, brother. Yeah, and this is just uh, uh, another really important passage about the importance of knowing God. But it's, it's in such a, a different context because it's what you and I would think of. A, it's an evangelistic passage. It's people that don't know anything about God. And this is how the Apostle Paul approaches it. He, he just presses into their consciousness the character of the God with whom they will have to do. And it's possible, actually knowing you folks is probably not the case, but some might not think that you know, knowing God and increasing the knowledge of God is that helpful in evangelism that might think more in terms of a technique or some method. But here we see the Apostle Paul just deeply rooted in holy, the, the, the understanding of the God of the Bible, and it's very applicable in the context of sharing the gospel with those that really, in this case, who knew very little about the being of God. So um, <clears throat> I think that's it for this morning. Appreciate your patience there. And so these are just some, some texts, again, that relate to the importance of the knowledge of the being of God, and then next time we're together, we'll move into uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, which is the, the second chapter of the Confession. But um, so... Nathan, if you'd close for us in prayer, brother. Father God, we thank you for uh, this opportunity to gather as a church and worship you. We thank you, God, uh, that you have revealed yourself to us Mm -hmm. and that we may know you. And God, that uh, you have uh, opened our hearts to, uh, with the power of the Holy Spirit, to understand you and just uh, pray, God, that as we uh, continue to spend time in your words, we continue to uh, walk with you, that our knowledge of you would grow and our understanding of you would, uh, would grow so that we might uh, please you. Father, we're thankful for everyone in this room. We pray that you would uh, be with uh, Pastor Doug this morning. We pray that you would be with his voice and uh, 
that you've given strength. We thank you, God, for this opportunity to worship you and in all things we give you glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.